Hello, Olina here, filling in for the lovely Ms. Woodsick. She had a very busy week opening The Adams Family, directed by Lonnie Brockman at Whidbey Island Center for the Arts last night. Uh, she just opened, so congratulations, Katie. I hope opening went well. Uh, today is December 5th, and we have episode 57 with Litsa Dremusis. We talk about her book, Altitude Sickness, and about grieving loss through humor, as well as some other things. Thanks to this episode's sponsor, Second Street Hair Boutique in Langley on Whidbey Island. And don't forget, you too can help us continue into the new year. Check out our Facebook page for more info on how to donate and become a sustaining sponsor. Thank you so much. Enjoy the episode. This is Olina today with Litsa Drumusis, writer of Altitude Sickness, and we're going to talk about her book and events coming up for her. So hey, thank Alina. you so much for being here. <laughs> thank you for having me. We're at a Top Pot donut shop, so there may be some background noise, which is all part of it. So can you tell me a little bit about your book for our listeners? And um, it's obviously a very personal story of... It is. It yeah. is. Uh, I'm very fortunate. A year and a half ago, Future Tense Books in Portland came to me and said they wanted to launch their first ebook line. They'd never done it before. And for their 20th year anniversary, they wanted me to launch Instant Future, which is the ebook division. And they asked if I had a long essay. They wanted to do ebooks of 10 to 12,000 words because that's a length you don't see in print that much anymore. Mm-hmm. And they said, Do you have an idea for a long essay or memoir? And just through coincidence, I'd been taking notes on altitude sickness for two years. And so I said yes, and within half an hour, Matthew Simmons, my editor, and I had the whole thing locked. Wow. And yet, it was really serendipitous. I had been doing a lot of research into the neurobiology behind mountain and rock climbing and extreme sports, because anecdotally I was discovering the similarities between climbers and addicts Mm -hmm. and when you have people who are otherwise salient feeling most alive when they're risking death it Mm -hmm. was impossible not to see the parallels absolutely so TJ who I I call him Neil in the book that was our nickname together Uh, he used to call me Jack for Jack Kerouac and I used to call him Neil for Neil Cassidy he came up with the nicknames because he always bounced around everywhere and I wrote about him I wrote about him a number of times when he was alive Mm -hmm. And he'd been dead four years when I I had been taking notes and, and just trying to, knowing I was never going to come up with an answer why he kept climbing mm-hmm. despite everything, but trying to figure out as much as I could. Yeah. I did not know this was, was already a burgeoning field of neuroscience. As climbing becomes much more popular in the Western world as, as hang gliding, any extreme sport, you're seeing people die for wholly preventable reasons, and there is a lot of research being done in, in the States, in Italy, in Spain, in France, as to why. Mm-hmm. When, when otherwise really level-headed people keep risking their lives again mm-hmm. and again and again, and it turns out, and that's why I called the book Altitude Sickness, and in fact, with Future Tense Books, I even had the title. When Matthew asked, do you have an idea? I said, yeah, I've got the title, I've got everything. Wow, that's really So cool. it was... It was amazing how that all came together, and the reason I called it Altitude Sickness is because TJ was brilliant, he was funny, he was kind, he was incredibly talented in anything he did. Having already survived a bear attack almost 10 years to the day before he went missing and died, after the initial horrific shock and grief wore off after the first few years, it it was left with this, I was left with this question, why? Mm-hmm. Why, in the name of God, given how many close calls he had had, why did he keep risking it again and again and again? He did die because the loose rock, it, he didn't know it was loose, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, rock gave way, he fell a thousand feet and died. That was a scenario he and I had discussed many times because he was extremely cautious and always well prepared. Mm-hmm. And I kept pointing out there's a variable you cannot control. Yeah. And that is why we had the 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 panic scenario, as he called it, um, 
But why we had that scenario in place where I had his itinerary in case something went wrong. At mm-hmm. what point, the worry zone, as he called it, um, mm-hmm. at what point was I supposed to call search and rescue? Mm-hmm. And I called, on the climb in which TJ died, he was on a solo climb, I called his climbing partner and said, have you heard from him? Is I have not. We're way into the worry zone now. We were three hours over the line. And we'd never, ever crossed into it before. Hmm. And he said, no, I haven't heard from him either. This was a particularly risky climb. He had already decided climbing season was over. Fall 2009, the weather did spike. Mm-hmm. It got really warm, and that's why the book opens the way it does. Um, if the weather hadn't gotten warm again, in all likelihood, he would have stayed home. Mm-hmm. He'd already said, this was my last climb for the season, then it got really warm again, and he went for one more, and that was the one that killed him. So, it's so hard not to. Oh yeah, like imagine the what ifs and the and and that took a long time to let go of because his friend and I both had a bad feeling about this one, and TJ was stubborn as hell. I will love him till I'm dead. The only person I know who's more stubborn than me was him, and you could not when it came to climbing, you could not reason with him. The fact that we had a worry zone at all and that I had his itinerary mm-hmm. for every climb was only because I made him and I would not drop it on that one. I just would not drop it. It's like, no, I'm going to know when, what is the fallback mm-hmm. if you're not back. And he always left a cushion because sometimes, again, as I talk about in the book, things can shift in the mountains. Mm-hmm. If there's glacial melt and sometimes boulders have shifted and so a route is slightly different, and climbers will have to go a couple hours out of their way mm-hmm. on the ascent and the descent for benign reasons. Mm-hmm. But it'll it'll change the arrival time when someone comes home. So he always left a cushion in case anything benign went wrong. So by the time we were into the worry zone, he was supposed to be home. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the four and a half days he was missing were by far the longest of my life. If, if he hadn't returned dead, those would have been by far... I've said in a couple of interviews, I've been told twice I'm supposed to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I still think it was worse when he was missing. There's such a feeling of helplessness. Absolutely. The good thing, quote-unquote, is the Chelan County Sheriff's Office said he died instantly. And what tormented me for a long time after he died is because he was so strong, having survived the bear attack, if anyone could have lived... 20 minutes and bled out slowly, it would have been him. Realistically, even if he survived the fall and then bled out, he would have been unconscious. Mm -hmm. So there's some measure of peace in knowing the seconds before he fell, he would have known this was it. Mm -hmm. But he wouldn't have been conscious or suffering that long. And also, again, having researched this a lot, uh, people's lungs collapse with with long falls. Mm -hmm. If he didn't lose consciousness or die on impact. It's incredibly likely he lost consciousness in the fall because mm-hmm. your your lungs collapse and you pass out. Mm-hmm. So what's really morbid and morbidly funny, so <laughs> underscoring the morbidly funny, he and I were movie fanatics and went to the movies all the damn time. Mm-hmm. We both read constantly and went to the films, movies all the time. When he was on dry land, our interests overlapped. 100%, but <laughs> he could handle depressing films, but he said he hated anything harrowing. Hmm. And one of the first reviews of the book called his story harrowing, and that was always my morbid inside <laughs> joke, is the way he died, it was so harrowing, and he hated any films where it was harrowing or it was obvious that someone was really going to suffer. It was kind of beautiful. He hated any, he didn't want to watch people suffer. He never intended to to leave so much pain in his wake. Mm-hmm. He was one of the kindest people I've ever mm-hmm. known. But a lot of us wrestled with things for a long, long time because, mm-hmm. first of all, you miss him so much. And secondly, his climbing friends, I don't care, we don't get along at all. We barely liked each other when he was alive. His climbing friends act like they're the Navy SEALs. Yeah, that he died on some mission overseas saving lives. And hmm. I keep pointing out, no, this was optional. Right, it's All a you choice. Guys, if you guys die, this is what your loved ones are going to be living with. Mm-hmm. Whereas his theater friends, uh, many of whom I was friends with, 
have reached a much more similar conclusion mm-hmm. that, hey, this was an option. He chose to risk his life again and again. Mm-hmm. Stop acting like he was feeding starving children overseas. Right. Stop acting like he was risking his life for his country. They, they project these really noble ideas onto what is an elective activity. Mm-hmm. And they don't like me, they don't like the book, and... I don't like them either. So. Mm-hmm. so it's fine. So whatever. It's totally fine. I really yeah. loved that about how you told the story of your grief and of what he left behind. I feel like that's a really important thing to acknowledge and be honest about with yourself is that rage. Uh, and, like, it was a Thank choice. You. Yeah. It, and I, yeah, I mean. And the anger, I think it's clear. Everyone who's, everyone who's not a climber who's read the book has figured this out. The anger at him is born out of extreme love. Absolutely. And that seems obvious to everyone else. It's because I love him so much. And you always, you keep loving someone after they die. It takes a different form. Yes. And if you're going to have any sort of life yourself, you figure out a way, you still hold them dear, but you can't stay stuck. Or you're not going to have any life either. Yeah. And that's, that's a hard... That's a hard balance to find, and I think we all absolutely. Find it. And it's everyone's journey is different to yeah. find that. And yeah, but when death occurs in a way that is preventable, like you say, it's it's very hard to find the balance it's, in all yeah. of those emotions and grief. And I have a friend I lost to suicide just about a year ago, and it's. I, like, I'm so mad at him, and I just feel like, you fucking idiot. But knowing that he had put so much thought and care and conversation into it with his loved ones, and right. I, I, it made it a little bit different, too. And it made me feel like I can experience my anger, and that's okay, and he anticipated that. Definitely. Um, Definitely. And also that I can still love him and feel like some some part of me can acknowledge that Truly, that's what he felt he needed to do. I don't agree with it. Sure. But sure. in the same way that taking risks and be- risky behavior like that. And there's so much we don't know. As much as we do know about neuro- in terms of neuroscience or neurobiology, there's still so much we don't know. Mm-hmm. And we know with persistent suicidal ideation, because I've been on antidepressants on and off for 20 years, and... It runs all through my family, and you have high-achieving people who suffer from recurring bouts of epic depression. The times I've come closest to it, I've always reached out for help. Mm -hmm. But I know when I've had suicidal ideation, it's not rational. Mm -hmm. And I have to keep reminding myself, this is not rational. I've called the crisis clinic. I have loved ones Mm -hmm. I can call. What I started a few years ago, and it's worked out beneficially for a lot of writers, because most of us, I have insurance. A lot of writers don't have insurance now. Mm-hmm. And as we know, writers are much more prone to depression, both going into it and as a result of our industry. And I'm not trying to make light of that. So it was my idea, why don't we all start exchanging phone numbers? Because we all email or text, but if it's 3 a.m., sometimes yeah. you just need a trusted colleague, friend, loved yeah. one, who you know will pick up a phone and keep their damn mouth shut. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us started exchanging phone numbers, and that has worked out to everyone's benefit, and a lot of it has been knowing that someone will pick up the phone. Yeah. That, hey, if you're suffering, I will pick up. Mm-hmm. And that, I'm really sorry with your friend that nothing worked because you yeah, left me with all too. this. Of course you're angry. Of course you're angry. And but I think that that was such an interesting point in altitude sickness, too, is that Neil didn't ever seem to display any symptoms of. No, he was not feeling suicidal or anything like that. It was really just the risk-taking that was... In his case, it was fascinating how many people asked me if he was suicidal. Mm -hmm. He was not suicidal at all. He was in deep denial about death. I could not get him Hmm. to acknowledge that he was risking death. Mm -hmm. He kept telling me... It sounded more dangerous to me because I'm not a climber. When I would see his climbing photos after every trip, uh-huh. he'd send me his photos. It looks more dangerous to elites because you're not a climber. 
it was not that he was in any way suicidal. He didn't believe he was risking death. Mm -hmm. And I think this line is even... It's funny when you write a book... You remember all the different versions of this? I think I kept this in. Yeah, I think I kept this in. When he said, I'm not going to be the guy lightning strikes twice, he said that all the damn time because of the bear that attack. That is in the book. Yeah, okay, that is. So, yeah. That he figured he survived the bear attack and that he was not going to be the guy lightning struck twice. And from but on top of how many other... Oh, I, I mean, know. you talk about... The pulmonary embolism in yeah, Kilimanjaro, like, the three malignant <laughs> melanomas. Um, lots, lots and how lots many of times he calls. got hit because he always rode his bicycle everywhere. How many times he got hit by a car? Like these are things that happen to normal people maybe one time. Yeah. Well, he was so active. Yeah. The question that has come up so many times is, as a writer, because I have been writing most when I'm healthy enough to write I'm writing so it's been everyone from New York Magazine Esquire Salon it's gone very very well I'm a contributing editor at the Weeklings um, I don't know did NPR a number of times so I've, I've been incredibly incredibly fortunate in any mm-hmm. aspect of my life I can control I am legally disabled I have MECFS. I've had it 24 years no one could figure out what is this writer and this climber doing together well, A, <laughs> when he was on Flatland, like I said, we both read constantly. Mm-hmm. He was incredibly well-read and massively intelligent. We were both huge film fanatics. But I was prone to depression, and he wasn't. So I'm very good at seeing it in other people. I've got very good radar. And I used to volunteer at the crisis clinic. I used to be a domestic violence victim advocate. Mm-hmm. It's not that I'm in denial. He just did not ever experienced suicidal ideation mm-hmm. and I know because we talked about it he would occasionally feel kind of blue but he I think he m- remained in perpetual motion he said one of the things he loved about climbing was it keeps the climber specifically in that moment mm-hmm. you cannot think about any other projects you have going on you can't think about what's going on in the rest of your life because you are every you have to be every bit of consciousness and, is yeah. present in, in the climb or mm-hmm. you can die uh, so, hmm. and he loved, loved, loved the summits, and that, I believe him, that, like he said, there's nothing like it, and you can't, he said you can look at every picture you want, you can't know what it's like until you're up there, mm-hmm. but he'd gotten so good at climbing, anything under six or 8,000 feet, he really kind of felt bored by, so... He was incredibly responsible and cautious within the context of doing something incredibly dangerous, but he insisted it was not as dangerous as it looked to me. That's, like, exactly yeah. the thing an addict would say, too. I just thought well, that was that, such a fascinating comparison that I hadn't really considered, because I've certainly had addicts in my life, and that, you know, well, you don't know, because I know how to handle it. And yeah. And, but always needing something stronger and something more dangerous. Well, and, and that was what prompted me to start researching mm-hmm. the, the neuroscience behind extreme sports. Because, mm-hmm. like everyone, we all have loved ones who are addicts. And yeah. I'm 48, so by the time everyone's my age, they're usually in recovery or they've died. So I have a number of close friends in recovery, and having known them when they were using, mm-hmm. there's a definite, definite overlap in that logic. Yeah. Where you know, it looks more dangerous to you because you don't, you don't drink, you don't do yeah. drugs. It's like, well, yeah, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist yeah. to figure out you are drinking way too fucking much. Yeah. That, no, I don't drink, but if I did, I'd know that 12 beers is not good. Right. <laughs> Stopping it two or three, maybe. Um, <laughs> so with with climbing, it was... It, He'd been dead a while till it started to, to dawn on me how mm-hmm. many parallels there were, and it was only because I started reading... At first, I could not read about other climbing deaths. Then I started saving any time a climber died, and especially in this region where they tragically die all the damn time, um, you start seeing the comparisons. Yeah. You start seeing the same stories over and over and over again. And and then you start doing more research, and that's, that phenomenon holds worldwide. Yeah. And I haven't seen Everest, the film, and I've heard it. All the reviews have, have praised it. Uh, I was tempted to see it. My best friend, Christy, said, no, <laughs> I, I will not let you. You are, I do not support that. Yeah, I, yeah she, we've been friends for 30 years, and she called bullshit. She's like, yeah. you will not see Everest. One of the things that compels me, and I'm not going to see it, but all the reviews have praised it, in that it, it shows a lot of the fallacies that the climbers have to tell themselves in order to pursue hmm. climbing. 
And as New York Magazine's reviewer, and I don't remember his name, he phrased it really eloquently that it demonstrates that the mountain doesn't care. You know, if you fall to your death, the mountain doesn't care. And eventually, if the other argument you hear from climbers is, well, I'm still alive, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's why I have that whole chapter with the straw men, because yeah, one of the reasons I just gave up maintaining any contact is there are so many straw men arguments. Well, you could get hit by a bus. You know, I want to live life to the fullest. Why is risking your life again and again and again the only way you can live life to the right. fullest? When that means likely the fullest life will be shorter. Thank you. <laughs> and then you hear, well, it's my choice. No one's debating choice because I've been asked that before. Would I regulate it? No, you can't regulate it. It's just... The other question that's come up a number of times, though, I think this is going to change anyone's mind. Probably not. It might give their loved ones more information. Mm-hmm. More, I wrote it because I needed to write it. And yeah. I'm glad that the book stands as a book. At my 30th year high school reunion, two of my classmates are psychologists, and they said they've started using it in grief therapy. Well, and I was really I think, moved by that. Yeah, beyond... Uh, it's certainly just as a catharsis for like reading someone else's story of grief and all the things you go through and regardless of how you lose someone it's still similar emotions and similar things and then also the other side of that is the addiction and like right it it does i mean it seems like risk taking is an addiction and addictive personalities might be drawn to that or to a substance and it just is a different way of- and also you see a lot of a lot of people in recovery mm-hmm. who then take up extreme sports. Right. And that's a very common phenomenon, yep. too, where it seems like you're supplanting mm-hmm. something nominally less dangerous for... Because, okay, climbing's going to be less dangerous than heroin, which is a guaranteed death. If you keep doing heroin, eventually you're going to die. Generally. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, there, <laughs> there's always the William Burroughs exception. And, and that was kind of what got me going with this, too, is because just like every friend any of us who've had, when they're actively using, they will bring up, Keith Richards will bring up William Burroughs. Mm-hmm. And then and the they'll rest... say that they're only hurting themselves. Right. And you'll which have... is not, not true. true. That's not actually true at all. It's exactly <laughs> what you're saying. You're dead on. Not that you need me to validate it. You're completely <laughs> right. And But there's always an exception they'll invoke. Well, yeah. William Burroughs lived to be in his 80s. Well, fuck, the reason you remember it's William Burroughs is because most... Because he's the one. Ma- yeah, he's the he's one. He's the one that made it. Name like, me good four, for him. Name but... me four others. Yeah. Uh, I'll wait. And with climbing, you have everyone invoke Ed Vister's and a couple of the others who've summited everything a million times. It's like, well, great. You can name them because they're because they're, they're the really lucky. That's proving and they have, yeah. yeah. And and yeah, it, it's and there is no reasoning with anyone and that right. is and there's no reasoning with an addict no it just the that no. parallel was so stood out to me it was it like I said I wrote it because I needed to write it and mm-hmm. I, I wanted to write the best possible book I could I've been deeply humbled by the reception it's gotten it's gotten really wonderful reviews it is coming out from a larger house in print next year but I was already halfway through another novel I've been very fortunate in the years before TJ's death, I was approached by five agents. Since he died, I was approached by four more. My health left when I was 24. My career has always gone well when I'm healthy enough to write. I'm extremely fortunate. It's gone very well. Mm-hmm. I didn't need him to die to, to write. And that's probably been the most hurtful thing. Someone, oh, one gosh. of the climbers who shall remain nameless said that I was profiting off of his death and A on my nephew's life, TJ or Neil as Mm -hmm. I called him in the book he gave me carte blanche to write about him when he was alive Mm -hmm. and was very clear be honest Um, and the reason he trusted me is because he was never the butt of the joke I was just as honest about myself as I am about him the essay that I have in a great Seal Press anthology called Single State of the Union, it was about him. It was a very funny account of one of our breakups, and <laughs> he came to the damn readings for the book. I mm-hmm. mean, 
it was an unusual relationship we had, but we never, never, never stopped loving each other or didn't respect each other, even mm-hmm. when we kind of wanted to throttle the other one. And when you talk about kids, um, weirdly, two years before he died, when we were both at 40, and he said, are we absolutely sure? And, and neither one of us, we were on again, off again so much, and I really can't exaggerate over 21 years how many times. Like, if you had a graph, it would look yeah. like this spider on acid, uh, our <laughs> dating relationship, and how many other people we dated. It was just nuts. And since he died, I've re-evaluated my approach to all that. But, um, but we're, he asked me, are we absolutely certain we don't want to have kids? And I said, yeah. I said, first of all, my health, I have a degenerative illness, and you climb all the damn time. I said, why would we bring a kid into this? I said, are you ever going to be at sea level? No, <laughs> we're not. <laughs> but at 40, he wanted to double check, are we absolutely yeah. sure? And I said, no. And given that we had gone out and broken up so many times, and I don't want, I've never wanted to be a parent, I, I could not see how bringing a kid into this was going to help anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I think your friend is very wise to have that conversation before there are children involved. Yeah. Oh, definitely. She's a wise lady. But I wonder how, what that struggle will be for them. Because it, I mean, I think her husband, this is, this is very much his way of life. He likes right. adventure. And it's not always climbing. He likes to travel. He, but it's always a little risky, you know. Um, and she, she was not like that before they met. When they, she likes to tell the story when they started dating. Um, he asked if she climbed, and she told a little <laughs> white lie and said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm learning." <laughs> so <laughs> early on, they like went on a climb, and oh, uh, that's funny. not something she had ever done. But uh, <laughs> did that become apparent during the climb? <laughs> I'm sure it did. I'm, I'm sure. She grew up in eastern Oregon. I mean, she's certainly, like, you know, camped before sure, but, and sure. been outdoors. But <laughs> she kind of faked the preliminary. But, yeah, 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 but the actual climbing part oh, was that's really not funny. at all real. Yeah, that, well, that would become apparent pretty soon, yeah. too. Like, no, I made that up. I totally made that up. It is such a fundamental part of a climber's life. Mm-hmm. It's not something they can turn on and off. Right. It's not like being in the bowling league. Um, yeah. It's not a normal hobby like that. No. Because no, of how much of yourself it requires to... Time. It's, yeah. it's such a huge time commitment, a huge financial commitment. Mm-hmm. Physically, you have to be in optimal shape. Mm-hmm. And when he went missing, a number of friends uh, uh, with the best of intentions kept saying well maybe he's lost maybe this and like I said in the book is what I kept telling them whatever has happened has to be worse than the bear yeah because he hiked after a bear attack yeah four miles four miles with half of his scalp yeah he had to hold his scalp on he had a shattered pelvis and the bear had eaten four really intense imagery four (laughs) inches uh, or six inch chunk rather of his fatty tissue in his back narrowly missed his kidney the amazing thing about the bear attack is as bad as it was, he still had 20-20 vision when he died. Even wow. though the bear had punctured his eyelid, she just missed the eyeball. Like wow. The doctor said it's just a total fluke she missed his eyeball. And so his vision remained intact, and amazingly, with the fatty tissue she ate in his back, his kidneys were fine. And that's how he lived. I mean, if she'd eaten one of his kidneys, he probably would have died. But mm-hmm. it, he, what was admirable about him is he didn't let the bear attack stop him. The hard part was reasoning with his conclusion that I won't be the guy lightning strikes twice. So when everyone kept trying to cheer me up while he was missing, I was convinced he was dead. Mm-hmm. And... I've never, ever wanted to be more wrong about anything. And it sounds strange, but after that many years together, you have a very close sense of one another. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean this in a mystical way. No, you just know a person. You just you know you a person. Know, yeah. And when I kept crying, I can't hear him in my head. Yeah. I can't hear him in my head. I could always hear him. 
and it went silent. Mm -hmm. And I also just logically, aside from any connection to him personally, logically, you know, if someone is that physically strong, yeah, and they're missing four and a half days, it has to be worse than the bear attack, which only left massive head injury or death. It, it couldn't have been when people were saying maybe he sprained his ankle. Like no, no. he would have just dragged himself. <laughs> yeah, he could have dragged himself a hundred miles with a sprained ankle. Yeah. Maybe he got lost. He never got lost. Once he got lost for 15 minutes, that's it. So it, that was, in the minute they found his car at the trailhead, they found his car two days before they found his body. Once they found his car, I knew, okay, this, yeah. is, this is it. And, but God, it just, it, nothing ever seemed as long. Nothing ever, ever seemed as long as the four and a half days he was missing. Because every 10 minute increment, you know that from trauma. It's burned into your brain permanently. Mm-hmm. What is fuzzy is after we find his body and after I come home from the vigil, the five days between that and his funeral, I have all the emails, our little cards, and all the letters. Mm-hmm. If I... I mean, I would remember it, but it, it just kind of... Once he's dead, everything just seems pointless for so long. And, and that... That took a long time to, as, as you, I mean, it takes a long time to start to find meaning again. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, but what's been gratifying, like I said, to have two classmates who are psychologists say that they're using the book in grief therapy. It's not yeah. at all why I wrote it, but it's nice if someone's getting that from it. Uh, I did have a climber at Lit Crawl last year come up to me. And I think it's because she was young enough. <laughs> she was only 24, and she said that I'd really given her a lot to think about. Mm. And she said she had started to feel really nervous on recent climbs and had been asking her friends, why are we doing this? I said, well, mm. trust your gut instinct. I yeah. said, I'm not, I know enough that if I tell you don't do it, that's not going to work. But I said, if you are having second thoughts about climbing, maybe pause and think about why you're having the second thoughts. Yeah. And that's that's an instinct worth listening to. Oh yeah. So I yeah I, I don't know if it'll change any climbers' minds. Um, I think it gives their loved ones more insight into what. Yeah. Because when you when you are in love with a climber, it is a, you like your friend. If that's your husband, a lot of her life is now built around climbing, even mm-hmm. though she's not the climber. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a factor. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting. And beautiful point, too, is that you're not trying to say climbing's wrong or bad. It's just, here's the other side Here's the other side. Here's the other side, and if you die, here's what your loved ones will be living with. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, like I said, there, that's why I have that whole chapter devoted to the straw man arguments, because mm-hmm. I've heard them so many times. Mm-hmm. And if you read the comment sections any time a climber dies, it's the same stuff over and over and over when anyone dares to question why was this person doing this, climbers in mass will take to the comment sections, oh, he wasn't a couch potato. Well, why did this become, how did these become the two extremes? That someone is completely inert and a couch potato, or they're climbing 12,000 feet. <laughs> right. Is there really no Isn't there ground? something in between? Yeah, is, is there no... Like, maybe, you know, going for a jog or... Yeah. Like... <laughs> or, or, like I said, what is so bad about taking the dog on a hike? You totally, know, just, yeah. Or just a regular... Yeah. That's one thing that would have driven him crazy. The Seattle Times, when his body was found, called him a hiker. And there's a big difference between big hiking difference. and climbing. And that would have driven him nuts. Not that it had any... Bearing on the outcome, right? <laughs> like, dude, yeah. this was not a hike. Yeah. Um, and there's a giant difference between hiking and climbing, but so that was just kind of the morbid, mm-hmm. morbid little joke. Because everyone said that at the funeral too. God, right. would have hated. Let's that. just be clear. Yeah, he <laughs> was not a hiker. He was a climber. You're gonna, and that was the other fascinating thing. Not one single media outlet got all the facts right. And we both write, so we know mm-hmm. the importance of of. Getting it all accurate, and not one of them got every single bit of factual information correct. And at this point, it's immaterial. I mean, the major fact was he's dead. So right. They got that one. But that one was just kind of fascinating. One guy, and we know where he was. Oh, really? 
there and no one's trying to like tell a no, different story. No, there like, wasn't this is that happened, much information but... to keep straight. So it was kind of fascinating. Yeah. No one was able to do it. So when you first started taking notes for this book, were you planning on creating a book out of it or was it more just yeah. like journaling about it? Because it, uh, it seems very, I, I love how some of the chapters are just a short paragraph about a few thoughts. Like with cliff bars. <laughs> yeah, with cliff bars and just like what that imagery now is for you. And thank you. It's just so, thank you. But, and then some of them are much longer and go into it, more. Thank you. In thank investigation, you. I think. Um, it's funny because thank you for noting that that has a lot of readers and reviewers have commented on that. And I'm so glad it worked because when I was writing it that way, there was very much a sense that this is either going to work really well or I'm about to just skid. I think it works <laughs> really, really well because that's so much how grief is. <laughs> yeah. You, like that it, one thing will pop up and it's like, Oh my God, I am having such a visceral memory right now. Right. Or then sometimes nothing will pop up and you know, someone will just cross your mind. And, and it, you it'll be the these whole... unusual triggers. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and if, we, and if we reach different conclusions on this next part, I say this with all respect, I fundamentally don't believe trigger warnings are effective or help at all. And as I've pointed out, for all of us who have unusual triggers... For instance, the new film uh, from Inyoritu and Leonardo DiCaprio, the trailer is Leonardo DiCaprio getting mauled by a bear. I was seeing The Martian a couple weeks ago, and okay, here's the trailer, and Leo is getting mauled by a freaking bear on screen. That never gets easy, any of that, or seeing climbers or seeing mountains. If you've got unusual triggers, you have to adapt because... Hell, our own license plate have mountains on them. Mm-hmm. And that that chapter in the book about going into L.A. Bay Bookstore and all yeah. of a sudden the mountaineering books are in the front now, and you can't prepare yourself for that. And over time, you absolutely have to adjust because the world is not going to accommodate you. And I realize not everyone agrees with me on that. That's my conclusion. That has been my way of adapting is the world does not give a fuck that he died climbing, and this mm-hmm. is mine to get used to. But that is how, like, you know, the, with grief, certain things are really visceral and immediate, and then others others just kind of take different shapes. And it, it's all very unexpected. There's mm-hmm. no way to predict how you're going to feel or how long you're going to feel anything. Or it, it just, like you said, it's every person, it's different for every person. It just is. And yeah, and even for every grief, you know. Oh, God, not, yeah. Every time you lose a yeah. different person, it's, yeah. you experience it's, it differently. That's really true. That's really, really true. What I'm working on now is the book I was working on when he died, and hmm. I've gone back to it. Um, because when he died, I was writing... I was still doing a lot of music interviews to... Because when I was writing for MSN, that still paid mm-hmm. really well before MSN laid off everyone. (laughs) But I enjoyed doing interviews because, as a music lover, it was a great way to to discuss music with some of my favorite artists. And secondly, it had nothing to do with him dying. And Mm -hmm. it was a way to keep writing. I've always interviewed people. Lately, I haven't. And it's been nice to take a break. But I've interviewed how many dozens of artists, Mm -hmm. musicians, and authors. And... When I was in the worst of the grief, I was writing about his death in my journal, and I've kept a journal since I was 10, so that's just natural for me. Everything's in there, and in my my journals. um, I knew Altitude Sickness would be a book. I didn't know when or how, and... I, like I said, I was working on a different book that's called Low Blood Sugar that I've resumed writing. <laughs> that one has taken me so long because in the course of writing it, he has died. Mm-hmm. Uh, my fiancé got a brain tumor. My fiancé and I just split up three months ago. So everything... Um, <laughs> low Blood Sugar will be done before I'm dead. And there's an essay collection that will be coming out. So 2016 is the print version of Altitude Sickness... 
and without giving away too much, because I, I hate jinxing. I, I'm not uh-huh. superstitious, but <laughs> when it comes to this kind of stuff, it's like, ah. So, yeah, it's print version <laughs> of Altitude Sickness, the essay collection, and Low Blood Sugar mm-hmm. will be out. Well, the print version of Altitude Sickness, for sure, is 2016, mm-hmm. and then the other two... And one one will either be the end of sixteen or seventeen, but mm-hmm. we're yeah we're in the home stretch for the essay collection and for the novel Low Blood Sugar. Mm-hmm. And Low Blood okay, Sh- so it's a novel. Yeah, okay. Low Blood Sugar is a novel, and always was like I said. Then TJ mm-hmm. died in the middle of it, and everything kind of got scrambled. Yeah. That is a fictionalized account of when I first became ill at twenty four. Mm. I have myalgic encephalomyelitis, what used to incorrectly deemed chronic fatigue syndrome we now know it is degenerative and curable uh, the Institute of Medicine just released a report earlier this year linking us not the etiology of the illness but the manifestation of the illness is very similar to MS which mm-hmm. everyone who has ME, CFS and MS, we all have a lot of friends everyone who has a lot of friends who have the other illness because mm-hmm. the illnesses manifest so similarly mm-hmm. but I was 24 and was in great shape very type A uh, was a domestic violence victim advocate was freelancing as a writer at night worked out every day walked 6 miles did 150 sit-ups or I'm sorry 150 push-ups and 300 sit-ups every day I went from that to three months later, I was in a wheelchair. Oh, gosh. And in 1991, very few doctors believed it was real. They called it the yuppie flu. Uh, one doctor told me I was mm. doing it for attention. And as I told him, I said, does it seem like I need to fake an illness to get attention? <laughs> so in the 24 years since then, it's been incredibly validating. Uh, the NIH finally, the National Institutes of Health, announced two weeks ago, finally, they are increasing the funding because there are now one million of us with it in the United States, according to the Centers for Disease Mm. Control. And according to the World Health Organization, there's now 17 million of us worldwide. Roughly a quarter of us are housebound. Um, Mm. I have not been able to drive with any degree of regularity in the last seven years. We know it's degenerative. They used to tell us you'd get better. We now know that isn't true. The Centers for Disease Control had announced in 2006 there are five genetic... They'd isolate the five genetic components that all of us share. No one has been able to isolate a trigger. They think it's probably going to be a retrovirus. Hmm. Is it going to be a combination of a retrovirus and certain environmental factors? We don't know. We honestly don't know right now. And it's, it's similar. Low blood sugar is similar in tone to altitude sickness, where it's a very funny telling of something that was not remotely funny mm-hmm. at all. And that's just naturally how I tell stories. To me, it, I start to, and I'm not judging anyone, because I start to feel self-indulgent if I keep it serious too long. Mm-hmm. And well, and it's so, I, I mean, everyone can relate to losing someone and to grief, and having some humor attached to that makes it, I think it's been accessible and it makes it okay to feel that way right. yourself right. too. And I think it's yeah. hugely beneficial. If that's how you naturally think anyway, I'm in no way judging anyone who doesn't skew that way. Mm-hmm. But if you do, it, I think it's hugely helpful to be Absolutely. funny. And that the, my brother loves the, the book opens with his line because he <laughs> did that is word for word. My brother saying that, that funeral eight balls. And then he went off and we went in the, when we got into the car, he went off on just this, rant at how just egregiously bad the funeral was. I love that first <laughs> is it, I don't know, chapter I guess, but the description of the funeral and opening with that it ate balls mm-hmm. which often it sets the sounds tone. like, it does set the tone and it sounds like, you know was it a shitty funeral? Like was it a bad funeral? Or then which it kind of yeah, in some ways was it would have, been. but then also just it's a funeral <laughs> and funerals suck. All like, funerals suck. It's not a fun place to be. Even, and I just think that, yeah. <laughs> that was such a great way to say that and to open that discussion of like. Well, he's so eminently quotable. Uh, <laughs> it was when I was, I was trying to figure out where to start it. I knew the mm-hmm. funeral was going to be in there, and I was talking to my then fiance, and we are friends now, so that's. Mm-hmm. But I was telling him about how my brother had said that at funeral balls, and then I, I like while we were talking, I was like, okay, that's where it opens. That is the and and 
once I had that, the rest of it just came. Mm-hmm. And because I had reams of notes on everything, both of from the research I'd done regarding the neuroscience, and then just ideas how I wanted to thread this all. And then once I realized, okay, this is where it starts, then it all threaded. Mm-hmm. What I don't recommend, and Paul Constant was great when he interviewed me last year. Don't write a book about your dead partner while you're going to brain tumor appointments for your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> try, try not to do that try next time. Try not to do try that. Not to, try not yeah, to. That's that was good it, advice. It, his surgery went really well. Uh, the book went really well. That was hard. That was that. It's a lot. It was. <laughs> yeah. It was not good. I bet. <laughs> so not. Having night terrors anyway, mm-hmm. going back into TJ's cards and letters, mm. because all of a sudden it's present tense again. You're reading all the stuff he wrote while he was alive, and your subconscious can't filter it out. So you mm-hmm. go to sleep. And I hadn't had night terrors in years. I have nightmares about him still, but like the terrors where you yeah. just are completely obliterated, and yeah. you, you wake up and you don't know where you are, or what's real and what's not. I hadn't had those in years, and. The combination of going at least once a week with Trent to um, neurosurgeons, because Trent's tumor, both the tumor and the location were incredibly complicated and atypical. So we assembled the very best neurosurgical team, and they got it, which is good. Yeah. It, the weight of, of the aftermath took the relationship down with it, but we are good friends, and... And, but yeah, so it was dealing with so much mortality surrounding partners that you're getting ready for your live fancy brain surgery. And I love him so much. And then writing about my dead partner who I love so much. So that was not good. That was not, that was not. (laughs) I really tried not to. I imagine that that was a lot. No one get a brain tumor while I'm writing the second one. Yeah, please. Uh, and Trent and I joke about it too. Trent has a wonderful sense of humor, so this isn't me making fun of my ex fiance's brain tumor. <laughs> well, because he didn't do it on purpose. It's not like... No, no. <laughs> Though I did almost get uh, these really cute panties at Nordstrom that have a skull and cross crossbones on the crotch. <laughs> There's a guy I dated between TJ and Trent who is alive and well. Oh, good. And I teased him, and he and I remained friends, too, and I've teased him, check your balls for lumps. Yeah. Because, you yeah. know, apparently I'm taking them all down. But um, <laughs> but I thought the skull and crossbones thing, I would think it was funny, and I might just scare the hell out of... <laughs> It's I a good test. It's the a next guy test. can't be like, superstitious. Can you, you figure the yeah. next one, if the next one is at all superstitious, he's just going to not <laughs> come near me. So, like, I didn't do this, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I am I am not ashamed to say I am starting therapy again. Yeah. <laughs> totally cool with anyone knowing that. I yeah, mean, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. <laughs> good, good timing. Just need to work through. Well, because... The engagement just ended, well, I guess almost four months ago now. It's just, I needed some time just to kind of regroup. And yeah, that sucks. You kind of need to be able to articulate your thoughts before you're in therapy. So mm-hmm. I just kind of needed a second, like, you know, I need to put any of this together. Yeah, and, get to a point. Get yeah. it on your own. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, so yeah, I, I am starting all over again. <laughs> It's so not funny, but it is. I mean, because that's all it can be is funny. Otherwise, it's yeah. just a horror show. And I'm super lucky. I mean, like I said earlier, everything I can control is going well. Mm-hmm. That's all any of us can do. Mm-hmm. And I was touched when Trisha Romano at the Seattle Times opened the interview with saying, I'm so tough, blah, blah, blah. But like I told her in that interview, my namesake died under Nazi occupation and my other grandmother mm-hmm. died at 48 in a coma you know life is life and like we're seeing like we've been seeing the last four and a half years with Syria or in any number of parts mm-hmm. of the world whether it's Bangladesh and the way impoverished nations being so gravely impacted by climate change so much of this is just luck mm-hmm. it is just luck and 
Overall, I've still got a great life. So I don't... I don't feel like, why me or anything yeah. like that? Because really the question is, why not me? Why would I well, be... Well, and that's a really Why would I be able to elude tragedy? I mean, it, horror is going to find all of us in different forms. It in is. In the scheme of things, I've been really lucky. Yeah. And then... I don't know, in a way that relates back to the straw man, too, you know, and that, like, there are things that you can't control, and it's... And it's good to cry and acknowledge when things are fucked up. I think, I don't think there's anything... Absolutely. I don't think there's anything self-pitying in crying for a long time, getting... Acknowledging, wow, this is really brutal, and then picking yourself up and getting on with it. Mm-hmm. And it's not like I, I, what I think is a huge fallacy is when people think the past remains in the past. I don't think it really does. I love the Carrie Fisher line: "Nothing's really over; it's just over there." Yeah, and yep, and you find a way to to allow it to be over there, but you don't ever really forget any of it. It's just you figure out how to lead the best life you can. Mm-hmm. I guess <laughs> it's like I'm a, an authority on this. I guess is the the caveat with any of that well every experience that we have is going to affect every experience we have in the future yeah you know it's all who we are and sometimes those things are more on the surface and sometimes they're less on the surface but it's always not to knock anyone if someone finds value in in new age and i'm lumping a lot of beliefs (laughs) if they find value and comfort in it great but i do think a lot of the notion that the past is a story we tell ourselves is total horseshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, the past, you don't want to get stuck in the past. Right. I think it's, it's really kind of silly to pretend yeah. it's just a story we tell ourselves. Yeah. I, I think that's, I don't think it's true. Which I guess is just, <laughs> fuck it. Okay, that's just what I think, but yeah. 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 So, um, Altitude Sickness will be in print. It will be in print. And I don't want to say from who, but it will be. It's a, okay. it's a, it's a larger independent than Future Tales. Mm-hmm. And because of its length, I didn't even pitch any of the majors. Uh, my fondest hope is that it will also be in the essay collection. Oh, because uh-huh. of its length, it, it would work as a very long essay mm-hmm. at the end. And I'm hoping I'll be able to do that. And we'll see. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and Low Blood Sugar... <laughs> I've now been working on low blood sugar on and off since 2004. Mm-hmm. So that one, God help us. Um, my joke is I want to finish it before I'm dead too. And also my friends keep asking. I'm like, dudes, it's not like I'm purposely taking my time. <laughs> like I'll get there. Like I'm really ill and... and You know, life. <laughs> yeah, I'm really ill and one guy died and the other one got a brain tumor <laughs> So, like, give me a break. Yes, and they're saying it with love. They're great. They're <laughs> totally. totally just saying it with love. But it's like, dudes, I'm going as fast yeah. as I can. Talking about theater now. Um, the, the first play I directed was Steve Martin's one-act Wasp, mm-hmm. which is a brilliant play. And, like, I told the actors, we cannot screw this up because the script is so perfect. If anything goes wrong, it's going to be clear it's us. <laughs> If I recall correctly, it was his first play. He wrote it before oh, wow. uh, Picasso. I'm sorry. Yeah. So it's a great one act, and it's just a note perfect script. You read it and think, Jesus, this is so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I obtained the rights to that and and cast some actors I'd worked with and I have my second degree was from the directing program at the UW oh uh-huh and my brother teases because I've got creative writing and directing that I should go back for philosophy and get the big three <laughs> <laughs> actually dropped out of law school I did attend law school for oh. a year and because most of my family members are attorneys and I'm it's a pretty low bar to be the black sheep in my family just not being an attorney <laughs> as the one who did not finish law school <laughs> So, yeah, we did Wasp in, God, 98, that's insane now, but the reviews were great, we sold out the whole run, and then the first two long-form projects I wrote were, my first play was If I Wake Before I Die, and the second one was 9 o'clock in the afternoon, and I wrote and directed and produced those, and I was already ill at that point, but I was in remission, and was working as a day job at an uh, office manager and architecture firm and pushed my body way too hard. Mm. But some of the photos I have 
of me backstage. I've got a 102 degree fever on a cane, and I'm still smiling. But I'm still smiling. You know, I'm just. I love. I love. Love. Love what I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, for all the hell we go through to do it, it's still we're lucky. It's. I did domestic violence work. This isn't life or death. You know. It's, no. And and I volunteered at the crisis clinic. There can be great moments of joy in this. What we're doing, and there's. Your best day as a domestic violence victim advocate is you kept someone alive, which is vastly more important. But you never leave that job feeling buoyant, ever. Mm-hmm. And once I was in the wheelchair at 24, and the first three years I was ill, I was largely immobile. I inverted everything and went from doing social work during the day and writing at night to pursuing the arts full-time, and then doing volunteer work. Mm-hmm. And, and, and arguably that makes me a lesser person. I'm a much more fulfilled person. But, yeah, I just feel grateful. I mean, I'm sure you feel that way too with acting. Oh, that, that we get to do what we love to do. So grateful. I, yeah, I didn't... I never considered doing anything else. <laughs> it wasn't really... My parents were both visual artists, so, you know... Oh, fantastic. I, like, it was never not an option so were your parents encouraging absolutely oh god nothing but maybe too much so sorry mom but like i i was i was really determined in school and like did well in school and went to college and did that but i only was ever going to be an actor or an egyptologist maybe for a minute in sixth grade i thought that was a really good option um but i didn't have any idea what my career would be i just knew i had to be in the theater. So I feel so beyond grateful to be working for a Shakespeare festival oh, now God, on a beautiful island. Like it is so beautiful. It's really it I, is. We are so lucky to be able to Oh, it and I and this. I think whenever I think it's important and it sounds like you've reached the same conclusion, never lose track of that. Absolutely. And whatever volunteer work or or mm-hmm. whatever we do outside of that to remember just how damn fortunate we are that yeah. we get to do what we love because yeah. most most people don't get to and mm-hmm. it makes such a huge difference and for all the craziness with theater two of my very good friends from that era we've remained very close 20 years later and we've laughed that some of the stuff that at the time was so nuts it's so funny now because you know that obviously when you're in rehearsals particularly in tech week when everyone's sleep deprived and no one's showered and everyone's nerves are frayed hell week as we all yeah know. <laughs> you have everyone who's tends to rev pretty high and their emotions are close to the surface at <laughs> the best of times right. now with no food and no sleep mm-hmm. yeah it's very when i was directing i always had plenty of food box. at my rehearsals for that reason that's good yeah always always especially saturday morning rehearsals i would have coffee orange juice and croissants because you don't need low blood of everything. Right. Um, but I, I miss going out, even though I'm naturally introverted, like I said, I'm either on or off. But, God, after after a show when you go out, or the cast parties, the storytelling was so much fun. Oh, yeah. Man, the cast party. I mean, we're a summer company, so yeah. everyone, we're, everyone just comes for the summer. <laughs> and it's like usually half new people, half company members who've been there for years years we're going into our seventh season so not that many years but like a few years but still um and it's just anything in the arts that lasts more than six months right yes yes it's good we're on a good track but it's insane the the family that's created yeah and i'm always surprised by that for some reason even though that's always been the case even in children's theater as a little kid like the family that you make in in a show it's so is a real thing. It's it's when it when everything aligns, it is so beautiful. Yeah. Like I said, two of my very closest friends, we we did over the years we did seven shows together mm-hmm. in some combination of acting or directing mm-hmm. each other. And I'm the only one who still lives in Seattle, but we're still so close. And when you when you connect, there's absolutely nothing like it. Yeah. But the post show storytelling whether it's at bars or restaurants mm-hmm. or cast parties god those are fun yeah those and when you're writing solo there's no equivalent mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you find your loved ones to go out to dinner with after you turn something in but there's no one there's yeah no group. It's yeah just, it's built it's not built into it mm-hmm. the procedure yeah 
In fact, that was something that took a long time to adjust to. When TJ was alive, anytime I finished anything, before he died and before the publishing crash, like 05 to 07, I'd been really ill from 01 to 04 and had been back in the wheelchair again. When I came out of it, it was just like the Believer McSweeney's Paste. Um, I, the cover story for Paste on Death Cab, I was the first person to ever write a cover story on them. I was uh, Esquire, uh, Paper, Nylon. It was just, if I was upright, I was writing. <laughs> so whenever I was done, he would take me to Dilettante for the, the Coupe Dilettante Sunday, mm-hmm. the, ch- the coffee ice cream with the hot mm-hmm. fudge. And like he said, this is the best. You are the one writing all this stuff, and I get to eat ice cream. <laughs> so it took a long time after he died to get used to that, that I would turn things in, and that we, not have that we didn't ritual. have our ice cream. Mm-hmm. We didn't have our ice cream ritual, and and you find new ones to replace it, obviously. But because we lived right by each other, and because he was home during the day too, mm-hmm. it it. It underscored his absence that much more every time I wrote anything. When I wrote After the Fire for Nerve, he had only been dead a year, and I was so entirely shattered. And that's where I can really see how much progress. Uh-huh. And one of the funniest stories that I left out of altitude sickness just for space is when we were talking about the cultural difference between Seattle and New York mm-hmm. earlier... There is kind of that quasi-new-agey thing here, which, I mean, that's everywhere, but still. (laughs) When TJ's body was found, his accountant kept emailing me saying she wanted to bring me this aromatherapy concoction she'd had her aromatherapist make for me. And it's basically just crushed flowers. And she said when her dad died, it really helped her. And all I kept thinking, because I said, please, I'm... I can't see people now. She insisted on coming. She said, I'll leave it on your doorstep. I'm like, oh, my God. I just kept thinking, oh, my God, did you like your dad? <laughs> like, how the fuck could this help you? Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Oh, I have crushed flowers. It totally helped me when my dad died. Like, did you like your dad? What? <laughs> no, this is not helping me. And it's not, nothing is going to help. He's been dead like yeah, a week. Like, <laughs> like, you know, nothing's really going to help right now. So if you just want to be kind, be kind. But don't. Yeah. Don't show up with a room with your <laughs> That's not helping anyone. Mm-mm. Nor has it ever helped. So, but people try. I mean, most people they do, and I kind. that I appreciated that that is also in altitude sickness, acknowledging that people don't know what to say. Yeah, because that's so true. It's so true. I'm sure you're finding that with your friend's suicide, that people really don't know what to say. Oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. And Definitely. If it's, if it's not someone dying of cancer at 85, which is still awful, mm-hmm. but we know we're going to die of something at some point. If it's an unexpected death, and if it's someone young, yeah, I think oftentimes with the very best of intentions, and, and really meaning that with the very, very best of intentions, oftentimes people don't know what to say. Absolutely. It's so hard. Do you have a closing thought you'd like to... I've been deeply mm-hmm. gratified by the response to the book, and... The letters I have gotten mean so much, not from an egotistical standpoint, but just when it's, this sounds cheesy as hell, but just when it's people reaching out to each other saying, hey, I had someone die in fill in the blank sort of way. Right. I've only heard from a few people who lost loved ones to climbing because statistically it's not going to be as common as other deaths. Mm -hmm. But that has meant, God, that is so humbling and so gratifying. If anyone gets yeah. something from it, aside from, oh, I like this book, that they just feel less alone. Because mm-hmm. I know so many books have made me feel less alone. So whenever anyone has said that to me, that has meant more than anything. Yeah. And I've just been incredibly grateful. I wish the book had been about anything but my best friend's death. I would <laughs> love to write about anything else. Right. That said, I mean, that to me is a given. Um, yeah. But... I've been really, really gratified by the response to it and just grateful, just incredibly grateful. Because all we can do is write the best book we can write. And there's, you can't control response to it. And so that Mm -hmm. it's gone very well, I'm just incredibly grateful. So um, for more information, people can check out your website. And the spelling on that, because my first and last name are Greek, L-I-T-S-A-D-R-E-M-O-U-S-I-S. (laughs) dot com <laughs> uh, and 
an exciting announcement. You've got an award, a new award. I do. I do. Uh, Shelf Unbound, which is a wonderful literary magazine that's both online and in print. On December 1st, we'll be announced that Altitude Sickness was named one of their most notable books of 2015. And they'd given the book a great review earlier this year, and they'd also had me on their podcast. So I'm just grateful to Shelf Unbound and in general. It's a wonderful magazine. They do great work. But it was nice to be noticed. And the one that has meant a lot, Seattle Met named Altitude Sickness one of its, the 20 all-time books each Seattleite should read. And I'm in there with Kerouac and Tom Robbins and, and John Krakauer and... Elisa Washita, whom I adore as a writer and as a friend, she and I were the only two first-time authors in there, and that meant that meant a lot. It's a great yeah. list, and and that one was hugely gratifying. So yeah, well, thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you, my I God, thank you. So enjoyed, and no, I understand the context. <laughs> <laughs> it's always really got a lot from <laughs> reading Altitude Sickness, and I plan to share it with I really people appreciate close to me. So thank, thank you. you.